Tonight I wanted to talk about faith. And just to place this within the basic framework, there are five spiritual faculties, faith being the first of these, faith, sada. The second one being effort, virya. The third being mindfulness, sati. The fourth being concentration, samadhi. And the fifth being wisdom, otherwise known as panya. So this term, spiritual faculties, needs to be initially investigated. What do we mean by faculties? The common definition seems to be an ability of the mind, something that's within the range of the mind's capacity to do, also described as an attribute of mind. An attribute of mind. And then why are these called spiritual, these particular things? because they can be turned in the direction of liberation. And in fact, if they're developed to a high enough degree, they actually become what are known as powers, powers of mind. So faith is the first of these, and that's what the talk is going to focus on. But before I go into a conversation about how we might hold this particular word or attribute within the context of the kind of practice that we're doing here, I'd like to talk about associations that we might have with this word. Because for many of this, this can be a loaded term, faith depending on our own particular upbringing and experience with the use of this word. In traditional talks like this, you might hear a a conversation about different types of faith, including uh, bright faith and verified faith and unshakable faith, which are all referring to stages of faith development within the Buddhist practice system, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit differently. I'm going to talk about it first from the perspective of our lay experiences of faith before and outside of contact with the Dharma initially. So this faith In its simplest or most primitive form of associations, is kind of naive and innocent, isn't it? It's kind of a childlike state where there's a lack of skepticism and analytical thinking. There's a lot of trust there because it doesn't really occur to the being who has this kind of faith that there's anything to examine outside the current understanding. It's not even on the radar screen. 
And there's a kind of simplicity with this kind of faith, which many of us have when we're actually children. And things are taken in very simply and in in an open-hearted way. So this kind of belief is easily shaped and maintained up to a point. Of course, there's no wisdom in this state because there's no intellectual engagement with anything. It kind of relies on the mind not noticing too much and then not questioning too much. So an example of this would be, I remember a conversation that I had once with a friend of mine, and she was describing herself as being a naive kind of person. Uh, And I said, well, what do you mean naive? Give me an example. And she said, well, when I was a a kid, I had this experience of talking to my father in a very excited way about Christmas and all of the things that I hoped I might get under the tree. And he said to me in this different kind of way, what do you think I am, Santa Claus? And he smiled And then I realized "Ah, he was Santa Claus. And I I said, well, yeah, I I can remember that. I can remember that experience of coming to that realization. But why, why do you think you were naive? Why are you coming to that conclusion? She said, well, I was in fifth grade. So this is the Santa Claus version of faith. So another version that we're probably familiar with, you might want to call faith that's uh, creedal or fundamentalist. And this particular version is where faith is made identical withholding specific fixed beliefs and in doing mandated actions. So these beliefs are often contained in a holy book or they're recited in statements of faith that have an unchanging text and very specific meaning. So those of you who are raised within particular religious systems may recognize this version from your own direct experience. So here there's a strong reliance on authority. There's often a a founding figure who is always male, who has a direct relationship with a deity figure of some type. And then there, there was a special reception of spiritual information and understanding in this interchange between the human um, contact person and the deity And uh, this interchange uh, is understood and taken to be the literal word of God. So there are sacred sacred texts and their literal understanding of this in some cases with uh, claims that subsequent lineage holders are the sole authoritative interpreters 
of what these texts mean. And what happens with this kind of faith is that truth claims that are at variance with the literal, unchangeable understanding of the text are rejected. Because the foundational or the fundamental point is we have the truth, it's in what these texts say, and that's what we use to decide whether other things are true or not. So other bodies of knowledge like archaeology or biology, etc., are seen to be extraneous or in error if they don't align with what's contained in the texts. So you can see that the framework of understanding is, is rigid and closed. So this form of faith is a low investigation or no investigation kind of faith. And in fact, the whole idea of investigation is very threatening to this version. And it can be personally threatening because it leaves, leads to a departure from orthodoxy, uh, better known as heresy, apostasy, uh, blasphemy, those kinds of E-words. But this kind of faith can have a very strong hold on people, especially if they're raised within this view, because the stakes of questioning this are high. You know, in former days, it could include loss of, loss of life, or something comparable. Uh, But even today it can include things like uh, loss of faith or uh, fear of damnation or in some communities being shunned or being treated as as an outcast who's fallen away from the truth and shouldn't be associated with uh, any longer. And I can remember having uh, my own experience with this, with the faith tradition in which I uh, was raised. Um, I, I was raised in a particular strain of Christianity that had a lot of uh, authority claims as part of, part of its understanding. And in a fit of zeal when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I decided that I was going to read the Bible from the beginning to the end. I was going to start at the front and read it all the way through as a means of, you know, really seeing and learning about this sacred text that, you know, was talked about and parts of it were pulled out and talked about. And I don't know how many of you have ever undertaken this exploration for yourselves, but, you know, I started and it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. And the further I, I got into the, the earlier parts of it, the more perplexed and then horrified I became when I got to the parts about you know, God telling people to smite their enemies and leave none of them alive, not even the children, and kill the livestock, and, you know, that kind of thing. I was, I can remember being, I don't, underst- I don't understand this. I don't understand how this can be 
this can be right. This doesn't line up with these other things that I, were t- I was taught about. The deity figure that was supposed to be all good and all kind and all loving and, you know, cared for everyone and, and was very beneficent. But then, you know, this part, he's like doing all these bad things that even a person, average person or even kind of a not so good person wouldn't even do some of the stuff that <laughs> and there was like a real a real log jam there for a while cognitive dissonance going on trying to figure out how to hold all of this and at a certain point i can remember my mind kind of going this can't be right and closing it closing the book and then going through a period of time that actually ex- extended for a number of years where I really started to question the inherited belief structure of the faith in which I was born. And I can remember some of the things that I've talked about here the, and fear coming up around them. Like, what if I'm wrong? Like, who am I, you know, this little girl in high school, you know, thinking, you know, you could hear like the voice of authority in my own mind, thinking that, you know, she knows more than, I don't know, St. Thomas Aquinas or something. Like, who are you to, and thinking, well, if I'm wrong, you know, if I'm wrong to be doing this, I could, I could go to hell. And then at a certain point, the other voice arose in the mind, which was along the lines of, but I want to know what's the truth. And if God is good, God would want me to want to know the truth. (laughs) And that's how the mind sort of slid, slid by that and out of that conundrum of needing to find a way to give myself permission to investigate, basically. So that's a version of faith. And that's probably for hundreds and hundreds of years was a dominant version of faith um, throughout the world. But its underpinnings are certainly being subject to erosion at present, at least in many Western uh, countries. But speaking of many Western countries, this brings us to another type of faith approach, which is often found in our Western society. And this I would call something like uh, functionalism. Or as Trumpa said in a most excellent book, a few decades ago, spiritual materialism. And this is a utilitarian view where the individual maintains their existing preferences, worldviews and understandings, and supplements these with the more attractive parts of the Dharma. So in this 
view, this faith, is that the basic existing view is sound and it just needs to be accessorized. So here there's a certain kind of consumerism that's in there in the mix where specific methods that are contained within the Eightfold Path are adopted and practiced in isolation from the other elements of the teaching. So in a way you could say that the Buddha's teachings are kind of uh, parted out. Ever seen a car being parted out? I lived in Oregon once in, a, in Portland in a not very nice neighborhood. And when I was there, after a while I noticed that from the window of my apartment I could look down at a, a neighboring driveway and there are these guys over there and they were working really hard. And they would, you know, a car would come in there and they'd be like all over that car doing things to it. And at first I thought, wow, what industrious fellows. They're really, <laughs> look at them, they're really working hard. When I had a little more time and I watched it a little more carefully, I realized they're taking the thing apart. <laughs> That's a stolen car. <laughs> they're taking all the good stuff off it and they're taking it and selling it. Okay, so thus the reference to the Buddhist teachings being, being parted out. So the practitioner uh, likes to get the juicy bits, but is not particularly interested in or tolerant of the difficult and unpleasant aspects. So often, because this is a very partial view, there's no relationship to or practice of any of the preliminary practices like generosity and sila. And the orientation is to meditation, especially to meditation for identifiable uh, and immediate results. So in this particular version of faith, the faith is in the worldview with which they arrive at these practices. It's not really seen as anything that needs to be examined or submitted or included in the practice itself. So it's not in, it's not in the practice. It remains behind or outside whatever's being done on the cushion and it's not examined. There's also usually not a lot of investigation of suffering, but rather there's an immediate intention to get rid of it and the practice is steered in that direction. The mind is actually pretty close and it doesn't even know that it has a view, let alone what that view might be or that it might be in some fundamental way influenced by delusion. So this form is often called spiritual materialism, which is the use of spiritual technologies uh, to enhance the existing self-sense and to gain upgraded kinds of experiences. So this is often accompanied by a misreading of the sermon to the Kalamas. (laughs) 
So that's a whole other talk. But the sermon in the sermon to the Kalamas, the the Buddha basically is approached by a community of non disciples and asked how to discern among discern the benefit of various kinds of spiritual practices that have been suggested by a range of spiritual teachers. And he tells them how they can discern wholesome from unwholesome uh, directions of practice. But it has a lot of context to it and a lot of provisos to it. So if you, have you ever seen those little buttons? You know, you see them here and there. Don't believe in authority. Don't believe something because your teacher told you. Don't believe. Don't believe, don't believe, don't believe. That's part of the sermon to the Kalamas. Small part. <laughs> With a lot, of, a lot of fill-in to go in around it. So, anybody ever hear the term lily dipping? I learned this one when I was on an ocean kayaking trip in British Columbia. And they were teaching us all how to, how to kayak, how to use the, the paddle. And the guide was looking at this one individual who was you know, doing a lot of stuff with the paddle. It was, you know, it was moving, it was hitting, <laughs> hit, it was going in the water, but the kayak wasn't going anyplace. <laughs> and she had a technique problem that he called lily dipping, which seemed to have something to do with, yeah, you're sort of doing something like it, but the, the stroke is off. There's something, you're not really putting energy into it, right? You're not really committed to doing it. You're, you're going through the motions. There's some motion going on that sort of looks like paddling, but it's not going anyplace. So this is, this is lily dipping, where the mind and the practitioner really isn't all in. It's do, doing some of it. There's some things that are part of the Dharma that are, have been picked up and are being done. But there are whole, whole big parts that are completely outside of it and aren't really being touched. So this is a little bit like picking up chopsticks and playing with them. You know, you can do a lot of things with chopsticks. You can twirl them. <laughs> you, can, you can do a lot of things with them, but they're really designed for a particular purpose. So then this brings us to the core of the communication, which has to do with faith and the role of faith in Buddhist practice. So a first thing to say about this is that the Buddha himself wanted to know the truth above all. And he was willing to go to extreme lengths to find the truth. As those of you who are familiar with the stories of his practice, in particular during his period of austerities, he would say about himself, 
many people have practiced austerities, but it, it can never be said that anyone ever took them further than I did. So the Buddha's orientation, his whole orientation was to liberating truth, and he was willing to submit everything to the test of whether it led to liberation or suffering. So you could say in a way that he was a radical empiricist with an altruistic motivation. And he relied on observation and experiment to come to his own understanding of how suffering could be ended. And then this understanding, of course, is then expressed in the foundational teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Has the thought ever occurred to you that, in a way, we who undertake these trainings and these practices within that full context actually are walked through a compressed and guided version of the very same process that the Buddha undertook to arrive at his awakening. So like him, we are guided in the direction of the development of generosity and sila, and then into the higher trainings. And of course the Buddha, if you accept the mythological version of his life did these things for many, many lifetimes and did them to a a degree that finally allowed him to penetrate the nature of reality through self-effort without having had a direct teacher to present and walk him through the teachings. He was able to have it all arise through his own direct knowing his own direct perception. So he had to start from scratch, except for his extensive karmic inheritance. But however, we have the benefit of orienting principles and instructions on how to proceed with our own experiment. And these are encoded in the path descriptions and the practices taught by the Buddha. So let's tie some of this together and talk about what faith actually means within the context of of Buddhist practice. And this is how I have formulated my own understanding, which is that faith within this system is about a multi-dimensional commitment to the process of examining truth claims. So this word faith doesn't mean adherence to dogma. It doesn't mean non-investigation. It means a radical investigation in the living laboratory of our own direct experience. So faith or sadha 
in this tradition is used to convey a number of things other than pledging your allegiance to a view. So it has something to do with confidence to proceed. Confidence to proceed with investigation and practice. So one of the images that is is brought up in some of the commentary, I believe, is faith faith is like a, um, a strong and courageous hero who plunges ahead in, tur- in the turbulent waters of a stream, helping to lead to safety weaker, weaker people who are undecided. So there's a kind of decisiveness and confidence there that's uh, part of the understanding of what faith is. There's investigation. The process of examining the Dharma truth claims. And of course, this assumes that you want to know the truth. That this is an important value for you. And this is one of the things that differentiates itself from what I previously described as spiritual materialism where the being would actually probably prefer that there not be too much need for revision of the existing understanding. There's some tentative trust needed that investigation, meaning this empirical observation within the framework of the Four Noble Truths, will clarify delusion. So you have to at least be willing to entertain that as a, yeah, I could see that if you really investigate and look at things. Maybe things will get clearer. Maybe you'll be able to perceive more, know more, separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, that, that seems reasonable. Faith also seems to indicate a certain fullness of heart a fullness of commitment to the whole process. If you look at the five spiritual faculties, the first of which is faith, the second of which is energy or effort, better better known as virya, this virya, this kind of energy and effort, has a kind of courageous quality to it, a full-heartedness that isn't deterred by difficulties or challenges. And this, this faith that's being talked about or, or called for, cultivated in this understanding, has something to do with surrender. I just talked about the effort being made in Viria and the courageous nature of this that's part of this kind of faith. But there's this whole other piece of surrender. Because every dimension of your humanity is involved with this experiment. Your body, your emotions, your self-identity, your views, everything. It's all in there. It's all in the hopper. It's all part of it. Everything's in. And this is something Again, that differentiates it from spiritual materialism. 
So there's an integrity of commitment to a process of moving towards an unrealized or and not fully understood outcome. There's a willingness to have deep dimensions of the being reshaped, realigned towards truth, and everything is up for revision, including the entire view of what and how things are and how they operate. which is a little bit different than, you know, stress reduction. So I used to have um, a little thing that used to come up in my mind when I did the first three-month retreat. And I used to say this at, at the beginning of every sitting that I did. And I, st- I still do it, this phrase sometimes. Because when I came on retreat, I decided I really want to know. I really want to know what's true. And so at the beginning of every sitting, I would, I, would, I would say this thing to myself. I'd say, May I let go of all holdings, patterns, and beliefs that keep me separate from how things really are. In other words, saying, okay, I'd like it to clear up. And I'm willing to be clarified, so to speak. It's a way of saying it's all in the mix as far as I'm concerned. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how it's going. But I'm willing to let things become fluid and let them move. You might want to, might think that's the, what's the, what's the stage in butterflies, the chrysalis stage, where the, the larva is in the cocoon <laughs> and it becomes the old form, the old pattern, the old shape breaks down, becomes nearly liquid. It gets as close to death as is possible to, <laughs> to get through all the, all the changes, the breaking down of the previous structures. And right at that point, the cocoon opens. So that's my understanding of what's being talked about when the word faith is is being used. And that's why you can see when this quality of faith is highly developed, there's a huge amount of power in it because the mind isn't holding any place. On some deep level, there's a kind of integrity of effort that has within it a kind of deep trust in the way things can be reshaped, reconfigured, re-understood, revised, and how the mind might re-emerge from that kind of deep, profound 
reshaping and reorganization. So then a next question comes up, which is, what kind of faith is needed to practice in the way that I've just described? What the kind of faith that's needed at the beginning is enough to begin provisionally the exploration and the practice of the path. Right, to, to just begin, to begin at the entry point. And this kind of faith needs to be developed along with the other five spiritual faculties, and it needs to be developed in a way that's balanced, especially balanced with wisdom and discernment, panya, the last of them. Because we've all known people who have had a lot of a certain kind of faith. I've described some of the, the other kinds of faith and just have, have no sense at all. Just, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's, but that's not what's being talked about here. It's not about I believe, I believe, I believe. It's I'm willing, I'm willing, <laughs> I'm willing. It's more like that. So the wisdom piece is important. And we're never in practice asked to turn off the wisdom piece, the discerning mind. I can remember I once had a conversation with a teacher and he was, you know, was an interviewer, I I believe, and we were talking about some, some point and was something that was presented that just didn't seem right to me. It just didn't seem seem true to me. And he says, "But you know, you don't have to believe that. You don't have to take that view." I said, "Oh, I know. I'm not. I don't. I don't take. I don't take views. I, I try to investigate and see what's true. And besides, I never turn off my BS detector." Because I figure if I don't need it, it won't go off. And he said, oh, yeah, that's right. So you don't have to turn off your detectors. You just have to see the arising of your detectors. (laughs) And look at that, too. Look Look at that, too. Examine that. Put that in the mix. Gullibility is not, of course, wisdom. So if we were going to say faith in what? We're going to turn that question of faith in what? Let's take example, for example, the the ritual that we did at the beginning prior to this talk, which is the Offering of the refuges. To take refuge in the Buddha, to me, means at an 
entry point where the mind doesn't yet have direct experience could mean there's a possibility of the awakening mind, awakened mind and a commitment to seek its arising with sincerity. Can you take refuge in the Buddha with that understanding that there is a possibility of the awakened mind existing and there's a commitment to seek its arising with sincerity? The Dharma, to take refuge in the Dharma... This could be understand be understood as there's a realistic possibility that the Buddha's description of reality might hold truth, and this claim should be investigated with diligence. There's a realistic possibility the Buddha's description of reality might hold truth, and this claim should be investigated with diligence. And the Sangha, taking refuge in the Sangha. Can there be a tentative acceptance that the teachers and community of practitioners are knowledgeable and trustworthy guides and companions on the path? Give them the benefit of the doubt, at least at the beginning. So what other kind of faith is necessary to really do this undertaking, this great, potentially transformational undertaking? There's at least two other pieces that have become vivid for me. And one is, there needs to be enough confidence and trust in oneself that the risk of exploration can be tolerated. You need to know that you can take care of yourself, survive disappointments and failure and the rest of it. And I say that because as I previously stated in pulling apart some of the meanings of this word faith, sadha, within this context, there's a confidence piece that's part of this. So if you tried to do it and it didn't go the way that you thought it would, and there was an experience of frustration or failure, or maybe you went down a blind path and then it turned out it wasn't what you thought it was and you had to revise and review your whole understanding and feel like you wasted time, would you be okay? You take care of yourself as part of this very adult, search for understanding and meaning. And of course tied into that is the faith that oneself is good enough, that you're good enough, that you have capacities which can be developed and brought to bear on this experiment. 
that you're not without resources. So I would take it for granted that anyone who is likely to have wound up in this kind of setting, doing this kind of secluded practice, has plenty of karmic resources that can be drawn on to support this, this kind of investigation. You know, none of this is to say that feelings of brittleness or self-criticism or judgment or fear or anything have to be outside this process. That's not what I'm saying, because you can be sure that all of those things will be part of the range of experiences that happen while you're on retreat. But on a meta level, M-E-T-A, well, and an M-E-T-T-A level too, I guess, is the mind willing to work with it? Is the, the mind willing to see the arising uh, of that as something that can be practiced with just like any other arising? So, there are very deep questions here with this, this topic of faith. And an important one, important thing to know is the realization that there's more than a little truth in that little New Testament parable about the value of faith the size of a mustard seed, which is very small indeed. The attribute is already there, it's already part part of the mind, part of the mind stream in some sort of form. So it's a question of really allowing that to blossom, allowing that to grow, and working in your practice in a very broad context to work to increase its power and to give it, give it scope, to let it support your efforts and support your development and growth and courage and confidence. We have this potential for awakening. We all have it. This is part of our birthright as human beings. This is within the range of human endeavor. So can the the mind seize the opportunity to realize our, our potential by moving from this, this place of faith and provisional trust to really investigate in our own hearts and mind whether these views, understandings, and practices presented by the historical Buddha are what are claimed to be true.
So that's enough for tonight. The may the mind of faith arise within you, giving you unshakable confidence in your own potential for awakening. And may that potential be fully realized in this very life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.